segues into landscape mode? Sure thing. Let me know. If... There you are. Okay, so welcome to the Sangha on Friday evenings. Looks like we've got quite a group here of about nine people. That's that's great. Well, plus uh, Al and Sandra, so that's eleven. Great. Um, yeah. So my question. So you were mentioning how you know in groups, uh, people often orient around whatever the group is enthusiastic about, right? You know, you have a group mm -hmm. of surfers. People become more interested in surfing, etc. So one thing I've found is often if I'm in some group, I often like to be a contrarian, you know, and it's, uh, and you know, I'm Jewish. It's a very Jewish thing to be a contrarian. So what are your thoughts? Well, I on didn't know that. That's such good news. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So uh, what are your thoughts on people that like to be contrarians in groups? Because I notice I often fulfill that role. Like unconsciously, and I like it. Pariahs and then superstars. Ah. Yes. And not only that, but um, the contrarian view is actually needed to make sure that everybody is looking and listening because the possibility is, is that this whole group could be headed right down a sewer. We need that contrarian there saying, hey, this thing stinks. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, certainly. There's definitely a function to it. You know, I think it does help groups work better, even if you suffer some cost, you know, in the meantime for being the contrarian. Mm -hmm. Yes, so the contrarian's view, in fact, that's uh, it's good. I like it when students ask me those hard questions. I was expecting Jeff to ask me some really tough questions last week about my hospital, <laughs> and he just let me slide. So, <laughs> but I actually, uh, the one thing I forgot to ask you, we could go back to that, was um, you'd mentioned before that Mahasi. There are certain things that he actually did that that are in the in his earlier writings that haven't been transferred to the West, and we didn't really get into those aspects. Uh, okay, and in fact, uh, I think that most of the folks here are aware of the video with uh, Guru Viking that Dan Ingram and I did um, on. <coughs> That where Dan actually read some stuff from Mahasi that was agreeing with the teachings, saying that all that stuff really is in the Mahasi. Do you guys remember that video? Was that when the second at, interview? At, yeah, it's the third, I think. But in any case, right after he read that stuff, I says, well, this video uh, uh, is over. <laughs> you just finished it right then. Uh, but here's the issue with it is, is that the better parts of the Mahasi method, um, there was an issue about how it was being transmitted to the West. What I can say is, is that Mahasi Saladal 
really kind of understood what was going on, perhaps from a slightly different perspective than Vicky Budadasa, but he was well known and well loved and uh, had a lot of people collected around him in Burma. And these are all Buddhists. And what that means is, is that uh, he had something going. We have to give him the appreciation, at least from that perspective. Um, never mind that what he had to teach didn't make it to the uh, to the West completely. There was some stuff missing. Uh, and that, in fact, um, the first video that I've done with Henry, I don't know whether it's been published or not, that we talked about this, where um, Henry was talking about the fact that what one of the main things that Western Buddhism is missing is the issue of the body and the breathing. And that seems to also be completely missing with the Mahasi Saladal method in the West when they say just watch the breath, which is exactly what um, Goenka has in, the, in their meditation retreats in the first three days of the Anapana, is just watching the breath with the instruction of when you recognize that the mind has wandered away from the breath, never mind, start again, come back and watch the breath. Well, <clears throat> if you watch it gingerly, or are not really, uh, let us say, taking control of the breathing, like taking long, deep breaths, that long, deep breaths seems to be something that Goenka doesn't mention. And that, that seems to be something that the Mahasi doesn't mention, the issue of taking long, deep breaths, which is actually right there in the suit. Mindfully. Uh, breathing in long and deep and mindfully breathing out long and deep. This is the practice. Now, in the old literature of Mahasi from the 1950s, Mahasi actually states uh, the following about the object of meditation. Now, one of the things that a lot of people uh, don't understand is, is that uh, there's only kind of one object of meditation, and that's the meditation that you do. And the reality, like noting, is would be note what's there, and that's the, the object of meditation. Where the reality is, is that the, the object that we use for our focus moves and changes, and that we can move and change with that object also rather than staying on just one fixed thing, which like the Goanka method of staying on the breath, the students can't do that because they're not even bothering to breathe correctly. So Mahasi talks about the object that we take, no matter what object that we're taking, we have to actually seize it, have to grab it. The language that was used out of the Burmese into English, uh, 1950 kind of language was to fall on it. Now, what we mean by that is like the way that uh, thieves would fall upon a victim on the highway. You jump on it, okay? Uh, the way that uh, in football, when um, <clears throat> the tight end or the big dude falls on the um, uh, quarterback, they call it tackling, okay? So we could use that word too, that we have to actually tackle our object. And in this regard, it would be the breath.
to tackle the breath. Also, we're going to do that with other things. But this whole idea of tackling the object, seizing the object, grabbing hold of the object, and making this a training session seems to be missing in Western Buddhism, West, missing in the Mahasi. Uh, we also know, um, in general, uh, the general public or the general Western Buddhist knows about Zen in the sense of the strength or the toughness in it, but they don't recognize that that strength or toughness comes from the Zen dude seizing his object or grabbing a hold of that object. Like in fact, uh, in the issue of Zazen, the just sitting means that you've got to seize the fact that you're just sitting. You're not sitting and thinking. You're not sitting and wanting. You're not sitting and doing this, that, and the other thing. It's just sitting, just being aware of what's going on, just watching the show. So in the in that language, that's another way of thinking of it. It's when we're saying just enjoy the show, just watch the show. We actually have to seize that show. We have to really pay attention to what's going on. Um, that in in fact. The English language word awareness that is used often with Buddhist practice seems to be that mamby-pamby kind of language that is put into Western Buddhism. It seems to be, um, let us say, a, a spiritual titlywinks rather than a spiritual war against dukkha. Okay, so this is that whole quality is, is that we've got to become kind of a Dhamma warrior, not against each other, but against uh, the issue of seizing the object rather than uh, just merely noting it. So the word awareness could possibly be improved in English by using the word to pay attention. That word pay has the quality of putting the effort into it, as well as seizing of the object, falling upon the object. This takes some effort. Well, guess what? The Buddha has effort as right there, one of the big items on the Eightfold Noble Path. We have to take the right effort, and that right effort is to seize the object, whatever that object is. And in the beginning, it's going to be to seize the breathing, to seize the breath. Hello, Susan. I see that you're back. I think that the uh, uh, the Zoom or the Skype only has room for so many people. Oh, and it goes back and forth between whether Gavin turns his video on or not. Now I see what's going on. Okay. But anyway, I know that you're still there, Susan, even still though the it has room for eight videos. Okay. So, uh, Robert, you've got a question. Yes. Contrarian, sure. I hope. Oh, this Robert. Okay. Um, okay. Yeah. So, is there any is there any magic to your teaching? Do you teach anything magical? Uh, hmm. I have a very very broad definition of magic. Anything that is not real, right here, right now, something that doesn't exist right here, right now, actually doesn't exist. Magical thinking is thinking that it does exist 
Whether it actually in reality exists or not, we don't know because it's not right here for investigation. Now that's the subtle point, but to recognize, for instance, so let us say Timbuktu, we've all heard of Timbuktu, it's an African uh, city, and we've, and we've heard uh, stories, I've even seen videos about it, but I have never been to Timbuktu and I chose that one because none of you guys, I assume, have ever been there, which means that for all of us, Timbuktu is merely a concept. It's just merely a concept and the likelihood of us going to Timbuktu is very remote. So it makes no sense for us to spend all of our time talking and thinking about Timbuktu. Spending any time on it at all is just of no value. Well, guess what? Magic, like uh, spiritual magic, spiritual powers, are like that Timbuktu for you. It's just magical thinking. Why should we put our time and effort into thinking about them? That which does not exist is merely and nothing else but a mental concept. When we've got some real things here to deal with, we've got real dukkha and we have um, uh, real objects and real seizing of the objects and that kind of thing. And so anything that we're thinking about that is irrelevant to our lives would then be magical thinking in all regards. OK, so all of the stories of Christianity that cannot be seen like heavens and hells and saints and uh, trinities and sky daddies with binoculars and <clears throat> dudes floating off into the air and uh, raising from the dead and virgin births and all of that kind of stuff. Each one of those that I mentioned is not in any of you guys actual experience. It's not real. It's magical thinking. OK, well, guess what? Donald Trump for you guys is also magical thinking. Ukraine right now for all of us is magical thinking. We're not in Ukraine. I totally understand what you're saying. Um, I've run into a sort of a problem with my practice where other techniques, they don't really make sense to me anymore. Other than the fact that I'm satisfied when I'm doing them. So if I'm satisfied while I'm doing the technique, it feels like I'm on the path. If I'm Doing, but the actual technique itself, so Mahasi noting, investigating the three characteristics, uh, self inquiry, the actual other technique feels superfluous. It doesn't feel like it's actually doing any of the, like the legwork in making me sort of like progress spiritually. Like I feel like the satisfaction is like the entire path. And so I'm just kind of like a bit, it just feels like I'm a bit like bummed out about that because it just feels like. Ah, because you want like, something special like, out of the technique. I yeah, like I'm hoping that, that I'm I'm hoping that that actually like there is like some insight that self inquiry is supposed to give me, other than just be happy now. But it feels like there isn't. Well, and it feels like those insights is just another reason to be happy now. Okay. Well, I think that you've kind of answered your own question, but we can go back and cover that. 
in the sense that if the object is to come into a state of satisfaction, if the object is to come into in that satisfaction of unifying the mind so that we're not arguing with each other, we're not uh, inside, we're not confused, then that satisfaction is, uh, let us say, that holy place that we've all been looking for. Yes, yeah, and, it, and it's, it's, it is, yeah, for sure. Okay, so once you've gotten to that holy state, did it really matter whether you rode a donkey or a mule or a car or a train or a, a, your brother? doesn't matter how you got there. And so all well, that's, of these that's meditations... Sort of the, like, I've kind of come to is that it doesn't matter like the the techniques the 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 insights into reality is this way or is reality that way like that feels just like extra like bullshit like that i'm adding <laughs> to like the fact that not like suffer not suffering not suffering like that's it okay well here's the thing then is, is that um uh let, let us say that uh you, using the example of breathing or the air, if you're uh, riding to that holy place in a, uh, a car that has flat tires because the person didn't pay attention to uh, the air in the tires, didn't pump things up, then he doesn't get to the holy place. So that means that we need to pay attention to the transportation method that we got to get there to make sure that that donkey is going to take us to the holy place. But it doesn't matter whether it's, you know, uh, Hindu or Muslim or Christianity, that all of those are the various vehicles, but most of them don't get the job done because the vehicle itself is in disrepair. So um, let us talk about the mule is Islam. And they've got that mule just all dressed up in battle armor. And it's not going to take them much of any place. So this is uh, uh, the Mahasi method is like an automobile with flat tires because it's not paying attention to the breathing. Uh, so it, uh, you. You possibly have even heard of the Sufis. Has any of you ever heard of Sufis? The yes. Suf. Okay. What the word Suf actually means is cloth. So it's actually talk about the Sufis as men of cloth. But the Sufis, especially in Egypt, are well known for being the whirling dervishes. Now, the Sufis in, uh, is, a, is a, a big subsection of uh, Islam. But the whirling dervishes are part of the Sufis. And that those guys could just be on, I guess you could call it a whirling floor or a dance floor, and they're whirling, they use big skirts because that skirt gives them a tremendous balance. You know, just like uh, you've seen people do high wire acts and they carry a great big pole to, uh, because of, of the length of the pole, how long it is determines how far that end of the pole has to move when we're holding it right here just a little bit. Okay, so it gives tremendous amount of stability. Well, that skirt that the whirling dervishes use gives them huge amount of stability while they're twirling. 
and they can go right into because they're paying attention to what they're doing. They can put their mind in marvelous state. Not only that, but part of that uh, twirling has to do with activities of breathing and whatnot. So I would say that the whirling dervishes, their practice is as good as Anapanasati for those that it works for. But it doesn't work for them all. The thing about the Anapanasati method that the Buddha came up with is, is that it tends to work for everybody. There is a whole lot of different techniques that will work for a whole lot of different people, but uh, why should you spend 30 or 40 years testing one meditation technique after another until you find one that finally works when you've got one that works for everybody? That's the quality of Anapanasati. And the reason that it's for everyone is because it's got all of the various features that every one of the other groups um, uh, are missing bits and pieces of. So, Robert Cohen, you got your hand up for a while now. Yeah, yeah, sure. I had a different question, but this is an interesting topic. So, uh, what do you think the value of like mathematics and theoretical physics are? Because they're not directly relevant in this moment. You know, do you think they're they're you know somewhat magical in some sense, given that they're not relevant to being happy and satisfied? Well, <clears throat> maybe yes, and maybe no. Let us say this, that there are two kinds of language that humans use to describe reality. The first one, the beginning one, was language. Where babies would say ma, 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 and pa, 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 and that's where all languages come up with <clears throat> kun pai and tai, mare, mama, mother, language <clears throat> got formed that way but there is another system of language that you that humans use to describe reality and that is the language of mathematics now natural language or vocal language is sloppy we uh we create concepts where within mathematics, the concepts that are created within mathematics are quite precise. So that's one of the ways then that mathematics can help uh, people who are practicing Anapanasati is that precision. That in fact, uh, one of the ways of looking at it is, is that a computer is nothing but a big calculator. That all the computer does is algorithms, which are step-by-step -step sequence of events that if you do that same sequence of events over and over again, it will always give exactly the same results. To where I can uh, speak and give a talk, that talk can be recorded, sent all over the world and have 20,000 different people see that video and 20,000 people will all get something different out of that video. But a mathematics formula, you can send that to 20,000 people all over the place, and they all either understand it or they don't. And if they understand it, they all understand it the same way. So this is one of the qualities of mathematics is that it's precise. And that's, that's almost joyful. That's almost liberating. 
because it takes much of the confusion out of it that natural language keeps in place because we do not define the terms. You see, that's one of the qualities of mathematics that's the most beautiful is, is that the terms that we use in mathematics have solid, well-known and well-understood definitions. Then in fact, they spend a huge amount of time reassuring themselves that pi is pi. All right, they, I, some computer programmers got it down to a trillion digits. <laughs> when I was in there, the, I mean, we were just blown away that somebody could do 4,000 digits. How many digits of pi do you guys know? A trillion. Just kidding. No. Three, three. Uh, five. <laughs> well, we all know it starts with three. But how about 3.14159? Now that's out to, I keep down to six digits. Most use uh, 3.14, um, but uh, it's actually five, nine, but then there's just more digits after that. But six digits of precision is close enough for most Two and seven after nine. I'm a geek, I admit it. Pardon? I'm sorry, <laughs> Jeff, what'd you say? 3.141527. <laughs> ah, you beat me. Oh, I'm humiliated. Oh. <laughs> yes, you're right. I do remember now. The next two digits are two seven. <laughs> and so that's very precise. Now, here's something else around with formulas. If we can go just one more step, and that is Newton's formula for gravity. I understand that formula completely, but I could not use that formula to plot the path of Venus. I don't know how to do that, but I do know that I could use that formula if I really knew how to use it to plot the, uh, uh, the trajectory of Venus. But that formula does not accurately project the path of Mercury. That's why they got all screwed up. And the reason for that was because Mercury is close enough to the sun that things have changed. And so that's where we have to have the general theory of relativity. And now uh, Einstein has uh, a formula for gravity, but it is so complex, I don't remember it. <laughs> but it's a little more accurate. So this is the whole quality of mathematics is, is that we're looking for actual precision to where vocal language is just generally quite sloppy. Sure. So, that's mathematics for you. It has enormous value. Without a, yeah. a huge GPS, without that formula for gravity and other things that Einstein came up with for general relativity, we would not have GPS. Couldn't do it. Couldn't get it precise enough. But now we do so that we've got location to find out where something is simply because of the distance to the various satellites that it, that it picks up. So, Robert. Sure. So there's a very famous argument or question in philosophy. You know, do numbers exist? No, no, the other Robert. Hang on. Oh. The other Robert's <laughs> got his hand up. Sorry, sorry, other Robert. Good. <laughs> I can't hear you. Um, 
cross my heart and hope to die on Uncle's Ashes is the last time I'll ever ask this. Kind of follows from my other question. But basically, is there a transcendent ultimate reality or is reality just whatever we believe it is? I don't know and I don't care. I'm quite satisfied without That's knowing. That's the problem. That. Like, I don't, like, I just don't like, care anymore because I can be satisfied by just doing your technique. So I don't care about absolute truth. and I don't care about, like, discovering the ultimate spiritual awakening, high, uh -huh. final enlightenment. Well, I know, like, you know like, that, and it's kind of like bumming me out. <laughs> well, you've heard me talk about good, better and best. So perfect and pure and ultimate. That's all just comparisons. And when we stop comparisons, you can say that, OK, this is ultimate. I mean, this is the ultimate breath because it's the one I'm having right now. It's the only one I'm having right now. So it must be the ultimate breath. <laughs> that's that's oh. a good point, man. That's a good point. <laughs> My friend Dan used to tell me that the ultimate um, the enlightenment is the ego's ultimate disappointment. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Exactly. Why? Because we create a concept that no one has ever lived up to. That's what enlightenment is. It's something that people think exists where, in fact, it does not. It, enlightenment, that kind of enlightenment, is magical thinking. But there is a really practical definition of enlightenment. Yeah. What is that? That you can see. You turn the lights on. Now you're in light. You've got daylight. You can see. That's knowledge. And then the other one is you see what's there, the burdens, and you drop them. And now you're lightweight. Those are the two kinds of enlightenment. The third kind of enlightenment is magical thinking. That's the kind that Christians come up with because they put uh, Christ, uh, excuse me, they put um the Buddha up there with their Christ, where Jesus was just a real dude, just like the Buddha was just a real dude. Corey, you got your hand up. Hey, how's it going, everybody? Yeah, my arm's getting tired. I'll, Hi, I'll sit down in a second. But um, the thing that I was like kind of looking into and reading about uh, this last uh, couple weeks is uh, clinging and craving. And it's um, kind of was highlighted as a fundamental issue. And I was just hoping that maybe we could talk a little bit about it. Um, it's not really like relating to the, the things you guys have been talking about. It's kind of a, just a maybe new subject or something. But um, hopefully that there's time or space to do that. But I feel like it's a big thing for a lot of people. It's a thing that I have never really got a, a grasp on. I kind of know and people have a general idea about it but like how exactly clinging becomes problematic and you know just if we could just talk about it for a little bit or you could kind of just talk about it whatever comes to mind um that would be great i would really appreciate that well let us put it this way anything you're clinging to in a physical way where you've got your hands around it and let's see in that thing, regardless of how tight you're clinging to it, moves off. First at one hour, mile an hour and you're holding to it and perhaps walking. And then it moves at three miles an hour and pretty soon it's moving at 30 miles an hour and you can't keep up with it. And it's just dragging you down the street. And there you are clinging to it. <laughs> I love that, Domerado. That's really great. That's really great. 
So, like, That's some really of the clinging has to do with how good it feels, right? Obviously, there's a natural clinging towards pleasure. That's a kind of a built-in clinging. Um, and then I guess the other clinging would be conceptual clinging, right? Our mind wants to do what we think would make us feel good, right? So we cling to concepts of good and bad. If I think that a good person is wise, I'm going to cling to things that make me feel wise, right? So there is a clinging that comes from concepts. There's a clinging that comes from physical feeling. Okay. I just kind of in a yeah, way, so like, you're kind of gotten things backwards, and that may be why you're um, uh, kind of confused. Let's put things back in the order that the Buddha has them in the sense of Paticca Samuppada and where the clinging comes from, okay? That, in fact, your concepts of good or bad have a source, and that source is the source of the feeling of I either like it I don't like it, or I'm confused as to whether I don't like it or I like it. Now, if I do like it, there are several possible things that can happen. One of the things that can happen when I like it is that I want it. Another possible thing that can happen is if I like it is, is that I think that it's good. Okay, so both the wanting and the uh, uh, the delusion that it's good, those are both delusions. The reality is, is that I want it. And the, uh, excuse me, the reality is, is that I like it. But generally, we can like something without wanting it. But if we like it and we want it, then we think it's good. And if we really want it because we think we need it, now that's really clinging. Okay, so this is the how it goes. It goes first off from wanting. So the question would be when you're clinging to that pain, it's going down the street, dragging you along with it. The question to ask is, why do I like this thing so much? Is this in fact thing that I'm clinging to? Is it my wallet? Is it my stock polio? Because uh, uh, recently the stock polios seem to be <laughs> going off at high speed <laughs> right down the tubes. And if you're clinging to that, you're going to go right down the tube with it. So uh, the reason that we're clinging to that wallet is because we like it. We feel safe and secure with it. And without it, we feel insecure. So what we can say is, is that if things bring on a sense of safety and security, then we like it. And if it brings on a sense of unsafe and unsure, then we don't like it. And if we're not sure whether we like it or not, because we're confused, then the likely tendency is for us to fall into not liking it. In other words, if I don't know who that person is, I will assume they're dangerous and I will be wary. That's how we treat strangers. We always treat strangers as strangers. When in fact, we could treat every stranger as our newfound best friend. But we don't actually go for the automatic liking because we're still in self-protection mode of that fear. And that's what the job of fear is, is to protect us. And so the clinging happens uh, because things change. If you're clinging to something and it doesn't change, you've got no problem. 
But one of the foundations of all reality is, is that things keep changing. They don't stay the same. And if we're clinging to it as it becomes old, then we don't like it so much. An example of that is you get a brand new laptop and you're really, really happy with your brand new laptop. But four years later, you're not so happy with that laptop. You want a new one. Okay. okay. And why is that? Because the laptop has gotten old. It's gotten old in relationship to newer laptops. It's gotten old in relationship to the fact that it's the Wi-Fi or the, this or that doesn't work anymore. The hard drive is broken or you don't have enough memory or all kinds of things that it doesn't do the job anymore. So this is the reality is that everything changes. When we get it in the first place, we like it. So here's another example. I just talked to uh, uh, Alex about this the other day, and that is, is that when we like something and we want it, then we have to work to go get it. We really, really desire that thing, and we're not going to be satisfied until we get it. But then when we do get it, now it's so valuable that we have to maintain it. We have to preserve it. We have to keep it. We have to make sure that it's going to be okay. And even if we would do all of that, it's still going to get old and die. And we're going to lose it. And then we're really going to grieve because look how much effort I put into getting that thing. Look how much effort I put into keeping it. And now it's gone. Domorado, can I add something to that? Yes. <laughs> so what I've, what I've seen too, um, Corey, is that I, I think it requires like you want to like have the intention to see what is unwholesome about that which you're coming into contact with that you want. And, and, and the more and more you see what's unwholesome about that, naturally, you'll just start being like, oh, wow, okay, well, oh, it's great to see that. You, you have the congratulations then immediately wholesome comes into play and you see, oh, wow, there's this friend here called wholesome. I like this. And that thing that you have been wanting so much, you get so much distance from it and you start to see, oh, I'm not going to go anywhere near that. That's going to drag me down the road. And then it doesn't drag you down on the road anymore. Now it's, it drags you, you know, to your neighbor's house and you're like, oh no, I'm not going to get any of that. I'm satisfied mm -hmm. right here. You know, and it and and progressively more and more and more, it becomes easier to just dismiss that stuff because it's dukkha. It's like it's smelly, and you you, <laughs> you can smell it. You don't want that. <laughs> okay, so this is the important way of looking at uh, clinging. Is is that cleaning is the intermediate stage between. What happened in my mind that caused me to like it? And then ignorantly the liking began to cling to it. And then what happens when we're clinging to it is, is that we're going to lose it. And when we lose it, we go into a woeful state. And that woeful state is either anger or frustration or sadness or fear or uh, whatever like that. These are the various woeful states that we fall into, and those woeful states are defined then as dukkha. 
Okay, and, and so it, 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 it can be a kind of loop, right, Domorado? So you oh, can go into that woeful state. Right. That's and then you cling it again because that's your safety. Then you lose it again, so you're in the woeful state. Then you cling to it again because that's your safety. You just realize that it's unwholesome. You get out of the loop altogether. So this clinging feels kind of like tunnel. I was thinking it must feel like tunnel vision. Sometimes when I have a strong craving, it seems to occupy my entire attention. And I really kind of lose touch with maybe short-term memory or like my broader mindfulness. And it seems to have some kind of sharpness. Uh, these woeful states and clinging and craving, they, it seems like they just occupy your mind. It's like they take up your whole mind, right? Guess um, what? No. Okay. No, they do not take over and occupy the mind, but rather they're invited guests. And you're just in the habit of inviting those guests in. And you are complete control of your mind and you can throw those thoughts back out. They don't control your mind, that you are not being controlled by your thoughts, that you choose your thoughts. This is a major change in uh, the way that we think of or, or have the perspective that you are not your thoughts. You are the observer of your thoughts, but you are not your thoughts. You are not your feelings. When people say, I feel sad or I feel angry, no, that person doesn't feel sad, but the, the feelings of sadness are there. Right. But but it's just a feeling, just a sensation, just a, um, uh, a physical thing, but that feeling doesn't own them, and yet we ignorantly allow that feeling to own us. I am angry, which means that I am that angry. That's what I am now. And I keep changing from this, that, and the other thing. A lot of people want to know who am I? Well, it depends upon what you're thinking and feeling in that particular moment. That's who you are. Everybody's a moving target. But somehow or another, whatever we're thinking or feeling in this present moment, that defines who we are. And we think that that's who I am all the time. When in fact, we're completely a moving target. <laughs> I guess the thing about the clinging or the craving that is so difficult to deal with is that within these uh, woeful states and, you know, cravings and um, I say addictions because it's a really obvious example, but basically they kind of come with this component of almost like, you know, just be angry. It's, it's so it's going to be so hard to not be angry. So like that's the it's like I get what you're saying and we do have the power and the control, but I guess the issue that we have and why everyone gets sucked into these things is because it seems to have this component of like it's it's almost like your brain or something or some some part of the experience is almost like telling you how bad it would be if you didn't get angry you know it's like you know and so a lot of these you, yes things, you do justify it okay but let's back up because you're using words like hard and difficult well, it's, yeah, it's like a subconscious thing. That's just how they appear. Well, it's only subconscious because you're not paying attention to it. Okay. If you're paying attention to it, it's not subconscious. Just like a mosquito can bite and you're not conscious of it until after the mosquito is finished with his meal. Okay. 
but he was there. So uh, in Western language, we call that subconscious. But really, there is, we're either conscious or we're not conscious. There's various degrees of it. But really what we mean by subconscious is that we're just simply not looking. We're just not paying attention. There it is, and we're not looking at it. Okay, or another way of, of talking about it is, is that you do have complete control of the mind. At any moment, you can think any thought that you want to think. But we've been in the habit of thinking one thing over and over and over again, and it seems like that that's the only thing that I can think of. But that's not true. You can, in fact, change your mind. You could be sitting and dwelling and being very hot, uh, uh, and let us say even in an argument with another person who is thinking about that topic and very, very hot. And all of a sudden, some big event happens, like maybe the siren alarm goes off, or maybe the, uh, uh, the air raid whistle goes off, or maybe uh, the cop comes in and shoots his gun. And all of a sudden, everybody in the room drops that argument and pays attention to the new event. Very easy to do. That's the thing okay. I was talking about with the tunnel vision is it seems to automatically concentrate our mind on a specific thing. And it almost like it's like certain experiences just for, force us to concentrate or that the mind. So I it's guess not. It's not, though. Think of it this way instead is, is that you just have that thought and then you have it again and then you have it again and then you have it again and then you have it again. There's no concentration anywhere in there. You're just having that thought again. The question is, can you see that thought and then change it? Okay. Just one thought. Okay, there's not a great big issue here. It's just this thought. That's the only issue. This is a very simple process, but we keep doing it in this particular moment because it's this thought that feels overwhelming. And the next thought would be after that is there it goes again. And then the next thought is, oh, poor me, this is really hard to deal with. And you can stop that little sequence when you catch it. And you can say, wait a minute, I can feel good instead, just like uh, 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 Robert without, with the, the headphones has mentioned, that there are all of these various meditation uh, techniques but if you bring that technique, whatever technique that you're doing, to the state of satisfaction, then that is a successful technique. And it doesn't matter what label or what object of meditation that you were using to get there. But generally, the reality is, is that there are several things that need to be paid attention to in order to bring that satisfaction in. And this is one of them, is to look at that thought and then change it. Because if we look at that thought and keep it again and have it again, we're not satisfied. We got to actually take the effort to change that thought. And we change it by putting a gladdening thought, a happy thought in instead. And that new happy thought is, hey, I don't have to think about her. I don't have to think about him. I don't have to think about that, whatever those hims, hers, and that's are. We just don't have to think about that. Hey, I can be free right now. I don't have to think about doing my job tomorrow because I'm not going to work right now. That's tomorrow. Let me be happy right now. So both Roberts have their hands up. Robert with the dog. 
Happy. So no, uh, no, with the dog. You don't have a dog. Yes. Okay. So got uh, <laughs> one here, one over here. We have a whole family situation going on here. Um, but <laughs> so um, in that 2004 article, that was great. Thanks for sharing that. Um, you were asked, uh, "What's the most important word?" And you said, "Noble silence," because it allows compassion to come in, or something along those lines. Could you talk more about that? Ironically. Uh, <laughs> okay. N noble. Well, I, let, let's not change too much of the topic. Uh, Corey, you're still here, I assume, even though the, I don't see you on the screen. Corey? Did Corey leave? Okay. He's muted. Yeah, there we go. Still there. I just uh, went into the other room to grab something, so I turned off my stuff. But I'm still here. I'll be here for the rest of the entire thing. Okay. All right. Um, yeah, Robert is asking about noble silence. We'll pack that in. Uh, the other Robert has his hand up. What's your question, Robert? Um, uh, what's the difference between directly perceiving the three characteristics and letting go of or not having attachments? They are the same thing. Okay. It's just a procedure. Uh, many people, when they hear the words anicca dukkha anatta, they think that it's a sequence. And for many people, it actually is. Because when things change and we're not ready for that change, we're going to have dukkha. But the reality is, is that that dukkha has selfishness built in it. I don't like that change. But when there is no self in it, the, when there is anatta, then there's no dukkha. That self and dukkha are interrelated, just like when we say, I feel sad or I feel angry. When, we, when we're able to separate and say, no, I'm not the anger, that's just anger, or I am not that thought, that's just a thought. Now we have control over changing it because we're on top of the situation. But when we are the anger, when we're clinging to the anger, when we feel good about the anger, and we think that the anger is valuable because it gets shit done, I've heard that before, it really does get a bunch of shit done is when we're angry. <laughs> Uh, when we recognize that, that it's dangerous, that we can get things done without being angry. That in fact, sometimes we think that we're powerful in getting things done when we're angry. And we're in fact, nope, we would have gotten it done a whole lot easier if we had been friendly with the person that we're trying to take it away from. Sometimes asking for things is easier to do than taking it. That in fact, great, our, whole, great. our whole society, all of Western society, especially American society and European society also, is based upon you've got to take things. If you're going to get anywhere in the world, you've got to take it. You've got to go do it. You've got to go work. You've got to go do it with the dukkha. To where within the concept of Buddhism is, is that no, everything is already free. There's no taking it. It's just there it is. It's almost like, you know, asking permission for it. That it's really okay. 
give yourself permission to be happy. Yeah, yeah. Um, there's, there's just no problem. <clears throat> it's when we create problems by thinking that there's problems. Something needs to be done, but that needing to be done is because we don't like what is and we want things to be improved. We want things to be better. Because and happiness just like is desirelessness, right? Happiness just is not having desire. It's just the, the absence of desire. Right. Satisfaction. Satisfaction and happiness are deeply, deeply related. That uh, uh, Bhikkhu Buddhadasa talks about that in a little book that he's got uh, is published in English, and the name of it is Hunger and Happiness. Most of us think that because we're hungry for whatever, Maybe not food hungry in the tummy, but we're hungry for items, friendships, relationships. We're hungry and we want things. And we have the desire to get what we want, thinking that if I get what I'm hungry for, then I'll be happy. But that happiness is dependent in the sense of I can't be happy until I get that. But if I do get it, I'll be happy. For instance, if I'm actually physically hungry and I eat something, then I'm not hungry anymore. Now I can be satisfied. All right. But if I'm hungry and my house is burning down, maybe it would be a better idea to get out of the house rather than sitting there eating while the house burns. So we have to put things in, in more of a perspective like that. So. Once we understand that it's a hunger that we mistake and think that we will find happiness with getting what we're hungry for, the reality of the situation is, is that real happiness is having not been hungry in the first place. Not have been hungry. That's the, uh, and not only that, but most people think that happiness is in the pursuit of happiness. An example of this is, is that you're in the desert and you're thirsty and you're trudging up one sand dune after another and then you turn up a sand dune and there below you in the valley is an actual real oasis with camels and palm trees and water and tents and belly dancers, the whole nine yards of it. And you see all of that and you're thirsty. And so you run down that sand dune to that water hole. And on the way down there, you feel quite relieved. Finally, I'm going to live. Finally, I'm going to get some water. And we have and we run down that hill with great anticipation. Right? That's happiness. But then we get to the water, we drink the water, and after we've drank some. And we roll over on our back and just feel satisfied after we've drunk. That's the happiness is not the anticipation of getting the water, but it's the actual fulfillment of having gotten the water. And that's another mistake. So um, yeah, an example yeah. of that is thrill seeking. Look how many people, for instance, uh, roller coasters. How many roller coasters are in the United States? Why would anybody <laughs> ever bother to build a roller coaster? Makes no sense. <laughs> And what's this point of Disneyland? It's because <laughs> of, 
seeking thrills and seeking excitement because we are confused that excitement and thrills is satisfaction, where in fact it's not. If you really want to be satisfied, get off that roller coaster. <laughs> Stop seeking. <laughs> yeah. Speaking yeah. of which, uh, yeah, if I, oh, no, I don't want to interrupt. Go ahead. I I was just going to say that like I feel like it's kind of heartbreaking in a way to see that everything you thought would bring you happiness uh, will not bring you happiness. Absolutely. Let's go ahead and not break that hard. Let's take a hammer to it and start pounding it because that hard is you. You don't that hard. Let's break it. Let's do without it. Let's throw it in the trash. Because in yeah. fact, it's not your heart that's broken. That's just magical thinking. When you say it's heartbreaking that all of this tough stuff that we've been doing. No, that should be joyful liberation to say, hey, wait a minute. I don't have to go get all of that stuff to be happy. That I can find happiness without it. It's your hope in that's fact, breaking. I could be hope. satisfied and pleased and happy yeah. and not get what I want. Yeah, let's let's turn that frown upside down let's interpret the insight in a positive way like that's that's what it's all about yeah uh-huh so Thank the, you, so Dan much Martin. for a broken heart <laughs> <laughs> i think yeah. you can figure out how to, anyway. how to being wrong because i think a, a thought occurred to me when you were saying that and uh you know a lot of things can bring us temporary happiness but the the hope in or the feeling in our heart is that I would be actually happy, lasting, permanent happiness, if I could just have the shiny thing that I want. And mm -hmm. when we experience the dukkha that gets reduced temporarily, we, we begin to experience satisfaction. And so what we're really feeling in the heartbreak is a kind of hope break, where we hope to be happy when we had the thing, and we're unhappy yes, that yeah. we were wrong entire time and so i was exactly. thinking it's like, like my hopes and dreams for my life and aspirations and goals and stuff it's right. like oh, and, you, and those I've have so been much time drilled in. into you since childhood that's part of your set of rules the buddha calls that seal about the paramasa that's what we're aspiring to this is what we're supposed to do this is who you are and all of that was part of your training when you were in childhood and now as an adult you can't live up to it the standards are too high yeah. And most people are miserable simply because they don't live up to their own uh, magical standards. And they are magical because we're not living up to them. If we could live up to our standards, then those would be noble standards. Yeah, so, oh. yeah, it's about like not knowing what to do and we just kind of get confused. And so like it's this seeking the wrong thing. And um, I guess that was another thing i wrote down some notes about another issue that i was having that is essentially what we're talking about in a different platform um I'll, so i'll bring it up later but like kind of or maybe now if anyone doesn't have anything else to kind of say about it but it's this i feel like it's a deep issue for a lot of people and i wanted to kind of bring it up because i hadn't been able to find any answers um I, I basically was talking to like kind of regular people maybe philosophers or people who they're not really philosophers. They just like to argue about mental. Things. Everybody and, uh, is a philosopher. That's a very ordinary thing. <laughs> right. So the thing that I um, noticed and what I was trying to kind of wrap my head around was um, I think I had it wrong. I thought that we were seeking 
because I was, you know, we go, we socialize, right? And I'm so I was wondering, what is the addiction with social media? What are we trying to get from social media? I thought it was some kind of self-reflection or self-validation. And so I was thinking to myself, I was really trying to investigate, how can I self-validate? How can I experience myself in a way that doesn't require me to interact with someone else? Because essentially, and so like, I guess the kind of, um, the dukkha that I'm experiencing and that other people experience is this restlessness of like, man, you know, like I, I don't know what that thing is. It's just a kind of um, a hidden dukkha or something. Then it just builds and we begin to get so uncomfortable that we feel like we have to seek it out somewhere. And then our brain mm-hmm. gives us something you know, like, oh, I would feel good if I just can talk to someone and, and they'll validate me and, and like I'll know that I'm smart and then I'll feel good because I'm supposed to be smart or whatever. So, um, so we have this kind of hunger or dukkha and we're seeking something and it's self-validation. But the issue is that the self is always changing and it's not really something that you can just sit down and feel. At least that's kind of the issue that I ran into. You know, it's like, is there any, um, but then the more we talked about it, the more I realized that. Finish the sentence. Is there anything? Finish that sentence. Is there anything that can reduce the dukkha that we feel in terms of because what we're really doing, we're seeking the self. That's the real thing. that, And so because hang hang on, Corey, let's not go down that rat hole. Let's let's talk about it from (laughs) another perspective. And the perspective is, is that when we were born, almost all of us in Western society, when an infant is born, uh, you could go so far as to say that because of all of you are still alive now, never mind the years ago, that time when you were born, but you survived up until now. But when you were very uh, tender infant, when you were born, you were completely dependent. We were completely subject to whatever happened to us. We had no control over it. If our mother didn't nurture us, we would have died. If she had thrown us into a trash bin, we would have died in that trash bin. If we were put on the doorstep, then the people on that doorstep, uh, that house of that doorstep would have to deal with us. The fact is, is that when a bigger baby is born, it has to be nurtured. It has to be taken care of. But by the time that we're about three or four years old, something changes. It may be another baby or it could be school or mommy's working and now she's got to send us to daycare or whatever like that. But we lose that initial nurturing. And we miss that for the rest of our lives. When we are taken out of our crib and put to the plow. And what we need to do is rediscover our own crib. We need to rediscover our own nurturing inside. We need to be capable of putting our mind back together again in wholeness rather than having this split between once I was nurtured and now I am busy. Uh And we all have that dichotomy inside. Once I was nurtured and now I am busy. And what am I busy doing? Most of us are busy trying to get that nurturing back again, but we try to get it now the same way that we got it before. Our mommy took care of us and gave us nurturing one time. Now let's go find a a, a, a drop dead George's chick to do that nurturing for me. 
<laughs> you know me too well. <laughs> and and so, well, you're human. That's all I know. I know humans. I've been around one <laughs> for quite a long time now. <laughs> so, um, yes, we look for that nurturing outside. So that hunger then is the hunger for the desire of being complete and whole and nurtured. But we mistake that hunger for thinking that we can get that fulfillment from outside to where it's only going to come from our inside by changing our attitude of, hey, I know what nurturing is. I have been nurtured and I have given nurturing. Now is the time to do it again right now. Let's have some nurturing going on. Let's have some joy. Let's have some satisfaction. Let's have some goo goo gaga. Yeah, you hit this the nail on the head. That's, That's what we need. We need a whole lot more of get you, get you goo. That's what we need inside the mind. Is everything is okay? Let's just have a little bit of play here. Wow. That's the thing. Is in all these enlightenment or these transcendent, these spiritual epiphany experiences, the real thing that is so hard to identify is like why do I feel so good? I don't know what it is. It's not what I've always known. I've always known feeling good because I, you know, I, I beat my enemies, right? I win the competition or I get the shiny toy or I get the, the pay raise, right? So I always get a good feeling from a thing. And these enlightenment type experiences, essentially, the, the, it's the end of dukkha, right? We feel peace because we're no longer restlessly being uh, forced to seek something. And right. so essentially... And there are several yeah. ways that we can get that. One of the ways that people have this experience, in fact, the Mahasi method of having that experience is, is work really hard and work really hard and be really tough and be dissatisfied and work and strive and work and strive. And then all of a sudden we say, wow, this is not working. This is too much. Let me take a rest. And then about three seconds later, they're having that epiphany. After they quit struggling, Alex is an excellent example of that. Is that we struggle with our meditation, and it's only when we learn to relax that the that the actual experiences can happen. That we had enough of the hard work. That's such a good point. <laughs> yeah, Corey. Yeah. Like before, I met Domorado, Corey, for years, two years. All I did was focus on my feelings. I would just go head first into my feelings. And um, I wanted to accept everything because I was told that in accepting our experience, we come to equanimity, we come to peace and, you know, freedom. But it's interesting what Don Morado is saying because it is true that whenever I, during those past two years, whenever I went through those really, really turbulent and painful emotions. After that, there was that bliss, there was that peace, there was that relief. And who knew that, no, we could actually just cut the leaves off of those root structures and then that root structure stops growing. And so those leaves are those thoughts, those unwholesome thoughts. You start seeing them one by one by one and congratulating yourself 
a week from now, you're going to be a different person. A moment from now, you're going to mm-hmm. be a different person. Yeah, yeah 100%. <laughs> mm-hmm. you, you don't have to take an axe and cut the whole tree of desire at once. You just need to remove the thing you're yes. desiring most in this moment, or not even most, just anything anything that's perturbing the mind. Just, uh-huh. you just That's exactly or right. Just, or focus on something else. You just, you just focus on the breath and say, I'm fine. <laughs> that's what Damodasa said to me. And it was shocking because when I actually did that and followed his advice, I wasn't thinking about the thing I desired anymore. And so I wasn't desiring it. It just wasn't there. I was focused on something else. Mm-hmm. The things can go that quickly. So what happens with all of us is that we see this issue, anger or frustration or uh, uh, clinging, whatever it is. And we think that it's a great big thing that is just messing with our lives. But the reality is, is that no, that's just concepts. We're just conceptualizing it as a big thing because we keep seeing it over and over and over again. Right. But the reality is, is that the only time that we ever see it is when it's there. And when we don't see it, it's because it's not there. And what we really need to do now is, is to recognize that all I have to do is just remove it right now when it's there. Rather than thinking I've got to do something magical to get rid of it for all time. No, we're not going to do that. And in fact, what would you do that you could do for all time to get rid of it? The only thing that you can do is to get rid of it, that which you have right now. Okay, so if there, and so talking about it uh, this way, that imagine that the, uh, uh, that anger is the issue. And then let's say, what is the root of anger? Well, we can't pull it up by the root, but what we can do, and in fact, the example would be that you've got a weed that is growing out of the cracks in the pavement. We cannot pick up and destroy the pavement because that belongs to the city, but we can whack that weed off when it comes up off the surface. And so if we keep whacking that weed, whenever it puts up a shoot, we whack that weed off, that root will eventually uh, wither and die away. And so instead of attacking it at the root, so imagine then that this anger is like a big tree in front of us. Well, actually, it's not a big tree in front of us, but it is anger like one leaf is in front of us. Let's just throw that leaf out. It's like then if you, uh, instead of uh, trying to cut the tree down because we don't have an axe, we can't pull it up because we don't have a backhoe, but we can pick it off one leaf at a time. The leaf that we have in our hand, we can pick that off. And so this is the practice then that we're going to is what we're doing right now. Let's get rid of that leaf right now. Let's pull that thing out of the mind right now. And eventually, we're not giving it any juice. It's not getting any daylight. It's not gaining any strength at all. And that habit will wither and die. But if you keep going to anger and anger and anger, you're actually building up the habit of anger. And so when is the right time to deal with anger? Well, when it comes up, it almost always comes up and builds up and builds up. The question is, how soon can you catch it? Because the easier it is to catch means the smaller it is 
or the weaker it is, or the earlier it is. And so this is why a lot of the practice of Anapanasati is to build the sati to where it's fast, that we can see it. We can see that anger before it starts to build up. A good example of that would be that almost everyone, when they get angry, the first thing that they do is that they speak loudly. They shout. They say, oh, or what? Okay, so this should be a notice for you that when you hear yourself making one loud moment or one loud voice, recognize <laughs> that you just did that because you thought loud and then you spoke loud. And so wake up to the fact that you're yelling at someone. And the next thing we do is, is have the presence of mind of shut the mouth. But the second thing to do then is to shut that thought out of the mind to say, no, I'm not going to be angry. I can do this. I'm a better person than this. Hmm. Just because that dog or that cow stepped on my foot or that person stepped on that foot does not mean that I've got to yell at them. Okay. Uh That I can move my foot. And in fact, if I'm really smart, I'm really watching what's going on. When they come close to stepping on my foot, I'm going to move the foot before they actually step on it. So that's the speed now, is that how quick can we avoid these things because we can see them? But let us say that on the other hand, what happened, uh, says some people are having trouble hearing. Does everybody hear me okay? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. All right. Okay. I just saw a note. So um, there's the other possibility that the anger has built up. Now, here's something. Every angerment, every fight, every situation that has anger in it is a build up. And if things keep going, things will go badly. An example of that is two guys are in a bar. One of them talk about how good this sport team is, and the other one is talking about how good that sport team is. So this team and that team is the issue, but both of those teams are just concepts in the minds of these two guys, and they're probably using different criteria to decide which team is better. One's got better statistics. Other's got a beautiful star. Others got really, really nice cowgirls, you know. So it depends upon what your criteria is for which team is better than another. But these guys are arguing about it. Now, if they if one or the other of them doesn't wake up, if they both stay asleep, then it's going to come to physical violence. And if that doesn't wake them up, then it's going to be coming. Somebody's going to get dumped into the lake. Somebody's going to be buried in the backyard if things don't stop. We do have some sort of presence of mind. We do stop our anger. A very typical example of that is the husband and wife are fighting. And then all of a sudden, one of them goes too far. He says too much. She's hurt too much. Something happens. And then the guy will, or the woman will slam the door on their way out, saying, I've had enough of this. Okay. That's when we actually see the dukkha. Finally, we see the problem that we're creating. The question is, we can philosophically see that any kind of anger, any kind of outburst is unwholesome, it's dangerous. 
But we normally, when we do that outbreak, as we're doing it, we think that that's the right thing to do. The question is, how soon can we wake up to the fact that what we're doing right now is unwholesome, that it's dangerous? We do get great gratification. Everybody knows that we feel gratified when we're angry. We feel powerful. We feel robust. We feel justified. We feel alive. Part of the reason for that is, is that, you know, we've got all of this juices pumping in the, in the body, and we kind of like that. But we can also see intellectually, the question is, can we see it at a deep level that this is dangerous, that we're not going to get what we want by being angry, that in fact, we're probably going to be doing a whole lot of damage. And that we almost always then are angry because of fear. So the question when you're angry is to ask yourself, what am I afraid of? Am I afraid that my foot's going to get hurt just because the donkey stepped on it? Because normally we can get over that. Normally, you know, donkeys don't step that hard. They'll kick, but they don't step on things so hard. So we'll get over it. And so we can begin to use our wisdom to recognize that our anger is based in fear, that we're afraid of something. And if we get uh, out of the way of that fear, then we can get out of the way of the anger. How quick can you catch it? Because the, uh, when you catch it really quick, it's really easy to deal with. It's really easy to deal with when you catch it really quick. And the place to quick catch anger, at least the, uh, the place that's important, is can we catch it before we speak? Can we catch it before we before we try to give it away to somebody or something? Can we catch it before we throw that glass across the room? Can we catch it when it's still mental? That's the real point, because if we can catch that anger when it's mental, that's sati. And if we can remember to look at what we're doing and see that we've just gotten angry, then what we can do instead is we can talk ourselves basically out of it. We talked ourselves into getting angry. We can talk ourselves out of being angry. How, do, how can we do that? Well, he really didn't hurt me that much. My foot did survive. I'm okay here. Everything is all right. Okay. Yeah, just nurture yourself a little bit. Mm -hmm. yes. Nurture yourself a little bit. You're okay. Everything is all right. There's no problem. Yeah, thank you, Donkey, for reminding me to have Sati. So, uh, Sandra, nudge Robert. Tell him to turn his microphone on. He's got a question. Okay, it's on. <laughs> Thank you. Um, so, you know, one thing I've noticed, you know, is in doing this practice is as my sila has, you know, improved so much over the course of my time uh, learning with you, um, everything has just become so nice all the time. So could you... Well, it already was nice all the time. It's your attitude that's changed. Absolutely. But 
you know, I wonder how much of a pleasant state of mind should be owed to Sati and how much to Sila, and what is the role of Sila in a pleasant state of mind as opposed to Sati? Maybe not as opposed to, but when compared with Sati. How do you kind of, you know, okay. balance out that equation? All right. Uh, first off, let's define Sila. And Sila would be then the acts and the behaviors that would keep us from being in dukkha. But these are also concepts or rules. It's like the laws of the land. It's what the police have as guidance or the laws. And in Buddhism, we call them precepts because they're not laws or rules, but rather they're perceptions that we can use to understand that if I go and kill someone or if I go and take something from him, then he will be in dukkha and he will feel obligated because of our society to return that dukkha to me in heaps. That this is what happens with our society with victims is the victims need the cops to go unvictimize them by murdering the person who murdered their son. Okay, we're looking for that kind of justice and whatever. So if we understand that Sila like that is a very ordinary thing for ordinary society, that's not noble Sila at all. That noble Sila is completely different than that because uh, when the mind is noble, and getting back around to your issue of noble silence, when the mind is noble, that means that it's unified, it's whole, it's satisfied, and everything is okay, which means that if I feel good and I don't want anything, then I'm very unlikely to go kill somebody to get it. I'm very unlikely to go take something from someone if I already am satisfied, because I know if I take it from them, I, they're going to be working really hard with their set of satisfaction to give that dissatisfaction back to me. And so when our satisfaction becomes more important than the item that we want, then we'll behave more nobly about that. So uh, going back to that issue of the anger, of being able to shut our mouth before we throw our anger out on someone else, which is basically uh, uh, um, an angry voice then would be harsh speech. And everybody understands harsh speech as being harsh. Uh, in English, we often, because of Hollywood, I think, have, have been confused about certain words, that this word itself is harsh. No, that word itself, to me, is a joke. I really love the word shit because it really is something that creates humor. <laughs> so, that does not, but you can't say that on television. Why? Because they think that it's a harsh word. Well, we're looking at harshness in the sense of the tone of voice, the sound we make, etc. And if you are angry and are shouting, the best thing to do is right then to buck up and shut up. That would be noble silence right there. And maybe that noble silence to shut your mouth would then be uh, the prerequisite or the prelude for actually bringing the mind into a noble state. 
so that you're not angry. So that we can use noble silence then to uh, uh, to bring the mind back into a noble state. Most of the people would say that noble silence means that you had to have the mind in a noble state before you became silent. But we're always looking things from the other direction here. No, the silence is going to help us go into the noble state. Because we don't need anything. There's no reason to be angry. And we can talk ourselves into being satisfied. While we're silent. But it's really hard to talk ourselves into being satisfied when we're still angry and telling the other person how dissatisfied we are with them. So the other Robert, you've got a question. Oh, oh I have one quick follow up here. Okay. Uh, about noble sila versus ordinary. So, you know, ordinary sila, I've often perceived as, say, refraining from doing something. You know, like do not steal, do not lie, etc. Whereas my understanding of noble sila has actually been more active, such as embrace friendship, right? Embrace friendliness, um, rather than simply refraining. Good point. Um, yeah. Good point. Yes, that's exactly correct. That um, we often see sila as rules that we're supposed to um, not break by not doing that stuff. But the reality is, is that a lot of it really is active. That Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa is actually quite big on the concept of duty to the Dhamma. That we do have obligations and if we don't fulfill those obligations we will suffer the consequences of not doing what we're supposed to do an example of that would be going out in public without wearing any clothes and i'm talking to you parker <laughs> <laughs> if you take all your clothes off and go out in public you know that uh, that ordinary people have a rule about certain kinds of dress codes now, flash, flash backwards 100 or maybe 1 million years, 100,000 or 1 million years ago, people didn't wear clothes and we got along just happily without clothing. Where did all of this clothing come from? That's worth a whole talk, by the way. It comes from modesty, sexuality, uh, vulnerability, that we wear clothing for protection that the body is as um, vulnerable like that. But guess what? Part of the reason why the human body is so vulnerable is because we've used clothing to substitute for what nature would, would do. But at one time before we wore clothing, we were pretty hairy. The dogs don't need to wear clothing. I mean, it's kind of funny to watch uh, people put clothes on a dog, but the clothes, the dog doesn't have any concept of why should he put on a shirt? Why should he have a bow tie? He doesn't get that. That's something for humans, right? So the dog is just fine running around completely naked, but us, we think that we need protection and we think that somebody who is running around naked is crazy. Well, guess what? I have seen the naked aesthetics, uh, most specifically in India, in Hyderabad, to where these guys were running around naked all over the place and nobody thought anything about it. it no big deal. 
But if you go out in Thailand naked, <laughs> you're going to have a lot of attention. If you go out and naked in the United States, you're probably going to wind up in jail. Why is that? Well, it's because of social conventions. That means now that we know that society operates like that, it would be valuable, wholesome for you to then to put on clothing when you go out in public. Because you know that there are going to be a lot of people who are going to be unhappy and dissatisfied because you're doing that. Well, we can take that to many things. That we take, we we go by social convention, not because, um, how to say it? We go by co social convention because we know that other people have those laws. We They have those rules and they will be unhappy if we do whatever we want to do. So we have to be careful about other people. This is what we then mean about the ordinary sila, Robert, is that the ordinary sila, we have to still take that into consideration when we're doing things in a noble way, because we know that other people are handling things. I mean, Parker, believe me, if you came up on my porch naked, I'd say, sit down and have a ball, man. We're okay. <laughs> 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 but most people are not going to do that. And so we have to take that into consideration. And that's part of the nobility is to recognize that we do have obligations. We do have duties to abide by other people's rules. Because it's dangerous to not. This is part of the wisdom. So. The reality then is, is that our own sila for our own behavior is noble, whether we're wearing clothing or not. But when we're dealing with other people who have an, uh, an ordinary frame of reference with ordinary uh, uh, morality, then means we've got to put clothes on to protect them from their own <clears throat> uh, set of rules. So I can happily keep somebody else's set of rules knowing that I'm, uh, uh, let us say, cooperating with them because I don't want to actually just freak them out. <laughs> but sometimes it's actually quite a lot of fun to freak people out if you know how <laughs> to do it in a wholesome way. <laughs> in fact, freaking people out is the best way to teach the Dhamma is giving somebody a surprise. Well, it, it's funny because that's like a com very common Zen method, you know, like there's the whole archetype of the crazy Zen master, you know, who asks nonsensical questions or hits the student with a stick. Like a lot of Zen is based off of that um, surprise element that kind of emerges out of out of nowhere, mm -hmm. you know, undercut. It, the it, and logic. it really has the quality of that surprise is wake up call, winky, winky, wake up. Mm-hmm. So, Robert, with the headphones, you've got a question. Um, got no, I think up. I just left my hand up, so my apologies. If I did, I'd forgotten it by now. So it's all right. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> all right. Well, um, we had... Go ahead. Another thought. So, you know, one difference I've noticed between Zen and Theravada is Theravada has much more of a scholarly element to it. You know, whereas Zen is much more kind of, uh, you know, 
um, bare bones and sit, you know, dig a hole, you know, kind of oriented towards physical experience or artwork. You know, Zen is famous for Zen rock gardens, Zen paintings, calligraphy, this type of thing. Um, why do you think Theravada is oriented so much more towards a, in a scholarly direction of studying the suttas, learning Pali, this type of thing, whereas Zen is more, you know, um, pragmatic. I, I don't know if pragmatic is the right word, but more grounded in earthiness. A lot of that has to do with the history in the sense that the Theravadas were the ones who kept the books. They're the ones who had them. The guys who made it to Japan made it there without the books, but they made it there with the mind. <laughs> Sure. It also has a lot to do with the history of that uh, when Buddhism was beginning to move into Japan, the, Japan was in a great war for the shogunate. And that la that war lasted from for a long time, but the shogunate actually was um, unified in about the 13th century. And at that time, 14th century, excuse me, and about that time, the um, uh, the warriors, were out of, uh, yeah, the samurai, the warriors were out of work. They became what was called the ruin. Not an English word; it's a Japanese word, and what it means is a, a band of thieves, literally. <laughs> but that's all they had. They all they had to, uh, knowledge of was their weaponry. Well. <clears throat> That's why Zen has so much activity that's associated with martial arts. I mean, you have Zen and the art of archery. Guess what? Archery is a big thing in, in Japan, probably even bigger than it is in, in the West. But archery is a big deal in the West. I mean, go to Walmart and there they have a bunch of bows and arrows and things like that. And they've got fiberglass and they've got metal and they've got this kind of point and that kind of point and all this kind of stuff. But in um, in the West, archery <clears throat> is still very war-footing in the sense that the target is everything. You got to hit the target. You got to hit it with enough force. So you got to have a really big, heavy bow and all of that kind of stuff and taking special aim and this kind of thing. Okay, but Zen is completely different than that. Zen and the art of archery is to do everything correctly to do every little movement of the hand, the way that the bow is used, et cetera, like that. So taking the arrow out of the quiver as the bow goes up into the air so that as the bow is launched, that we bring it down and then this right hand is going to be in place while you take the right of uh, the left hand and push it out. At the point of the bow going out is the time to let the arrow fly. This is very, very procedurally oriented, very, very tight little things to where in the West, they don't pay attention to anything other than um, don't scrape your arm with the bowstring. <laughs> but sure. other than that, it's all about hitting the target. Zen is not about hitting the target at all. But in fact, one of the qualities of the exhibition, and by the way, they don't have any contest. They do it all exhibition, even if they're doing it on horseback. And that's really, really difficult for this guy to be riding a horse, guiding the horse with his legs, his feet, while he's doing all of this bow work, one bow after another, one bow after another. And how he's doing it is the important thing. 
because if he misses that arrow, just one little uh, miss, just one tenth of a second of a miss, and he's going to miss that target when the horse is driving, going by. And so it's all very, very Anapanasati-like. When to draw the breath, when to take the bow, how long to keep the bow open, how to do it. And then the interesting thing is, is that after the arrow is launched, the arrow is now on its own. Westerners are going to watch the arrow and see if it's going to hit the target or not. But a true Zen um, archer is going to continue his form. He is not interested in what the arrow did. He's launched the arrow. The arrow's on his own. The wind and the sails and all that kind of stuff is going to affect it. But he has no longer have any control over it. In fact, Kilbrand talks about that. To think of your own children as an arrow. Once that arrow leaves the bow, it's not yours anymore. You have no control over it. So why would I feel bad where the arrow hits the target or not? That's got nothing to do with it. The question is, can I launch that arrow with the proper form? This is what's happened with, with Buddhism in, in Japan. It's just become very, very physically oriented. Another one, in fact, is the line art. In fact, there's quite a lot of Japanese line art at Watsuan Mok. Why is there so much Japanese Zen line art? Is because in the 1960s, there was a guy, his name was Emmanuel Sherman, who was a, a commercial artist in the 1950s. He went to Japan and studied um, uh, Japanese uh, art and Zen. And then he wound up, surprise, surprise, at Watsu and Mok in the late 1950s. And there he did an awful lot of stuff but his Zen was much more of Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa's teachings. But he did it with Zen art. Then, in fact, I would highly recommend anybody to see a set of photos or, or uh, the stuff that's in the spiritual theater at Watso and Mok. And if you have a chance, go spend a day or two there. Because a lot of that stuff, in fact, uh, um, I haven't showed it a long time, but there is one. Um, piece of Zen art, and this is it. At the top right-hand corner, there is uh, the word free is now, and the F is done as a salamander. And then under that is a great big fat Buddha kind of guy with a great big smile on his face. And underneath is um, a picture of a, of a town and it kind of gives the idea that he's above the world, or he's above the town, and uh, that this. Uh, then the the, uh, the caption that's on the side is. Um, let me see if I can get it exactly right. I've forgotten it. <laughs> I've forgotten it. Uh, Oh, happiness. There's nothing. It has to do with happiness is being free from the world, to being above it. Uh, I'll have to look that up to get the exact quote. In fact, it's it's so beautiful that I'm fussing at myself for having forgotten it. 
Hmm. Oh, bound here it is. Got it, Bob. Oh, boundless joy to find at last that there is no happiness in the world. <laughs> oh, boundless joy to find at last that there is no happiness in the world. <laughs> I love it. Don't, don't get our happiness from the world. This is Zen, okay? Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa style Zen by someone who really was into Zen art. And so um, another one is that, uh, uh, you know, that in the, a lot of flutes are made out of bamboo. And so here we have a, a flute that's playing the music and the music then of the bamboo, the bamboo came from the forest and now the music of the bamboo flute returns to the forest. So the bamboo flute from the forest returns to the forest as music. Huh. All right. Well, this has been actually a long talk. This has been, uh, we've got people kind of leaving now. David, I'm you haven't said much. And Damodash, <laughs> you haven't either. Uh, but you guys have been really great today. This has been a long talk. And I really have appreciated and enjoy it. Um, so we can talk more about Zen at another time, if you like. But basically, you're you're correct. We'll finish that off by saying that the Theravada is so into the books because they had the books. And that Zen is into the doing because that's what they were doing when they got the Buddha Dharma. Awesome. And, you know, I have a follow-up. I almost can't resist, but uh, do you think Zen is uh, superior in some sense? Because it uh, wouldn't be attached the to the mind rule. of the individual who is practicing correctly is the one who is superior. Hmm. Whether he is in Japan or in Thailand. That it has to do with our, is the individual getting value out of what he's doing? One is better than the other is not the issue. There's like hmm. a famous martial arts like fight that um, between like um, um, a Muay Thai boxer and then like a Shaolin guy. And it's really famous on the internet because they're both really, really good. And all the Muay Thai guys think that the Muay Thai guy's gonna win because they think that's the best martial art. And all the Shaolin guys think the Shaolin guy's gonna win. And then I think at the end, they actually come to a draw. And um, it's a really good fight. I think if you just look up like Muay Thai versus Kung Fu, it's like, the, it might be the first result, but basically like kind of that, what it sort of points to is this, this trope in martial arts, which is that there's no superior martial art. There's just a superior martial artist. So the Shaolin guy, got, he, he became good at martial arts <laughs> through his method. The Muay Thai guy got good through his method. Precisely. You, that's, that's a very beautiful way of stating what I was stating then back to Robert. It's not the technique. It's the application of the technique. Who's doing the application in the sense of are you getting good value uh, that in fact, I cannot knock Daniel Ingram because he really got enormous value out of uh, Mahasi method, but he had to make some changes to it. 
in order to get it to adapt to him. And so he's got an awful lot of people who are then complaining that, oh, well, I don't care what Dan Ingram is inside. He tried to change Mahasi, and we can't tolerate that. Yeah, you know, it's interesting because I think, you know, techniques do have an influence, right? The medium is the message, you know, in all of this. And, you know, you could perhaps make an argument for the cons on both sides. You know, with Theravada, you have the danger of the right rules and rituals, you know, where people read too much in the lion's roar, for example, and use it to justify magical thinking. Whereas on the Zen side, you could say they actually aren't connected to the suttas at all. They're missing out on all this benefit from having the suttas, right? So I think you could Maybe. make an argument side yeah yeah there's Maybe. there's trade-offs for new practitioners isn't there for people who are just getting into it and they're choosing and selecting the method that they're going to work with i've seen that a lot for myself because i i've the last three years i've been sampling different methods and techniques to find one that that really um aligned with 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 me and my intentions and also produced results and stuff so there can definitely be a, some trade-offs there so i think that's fair that's okay. like a fair observation well basically what you can say both for uh, in this conversation with both the Roberts is, is that um, any method when it's being presented in the beginning is going to not cover all of the bases. And that that's one of the values of the Anapanasati is, is because all the bases are actually listed there as objects of meditation that we can take. And that that's one of the values of that. But just because we've got Anapanasati and everything is laid out and spelled out doesn't mean people who read the Anapanasati Sutta are going to become enlightened because they read that Sutta. It's also the same thing that even though that Zen is not big at all on the Four Noble Truths, they really are big on things like you're already enlightened. Why, why do you want to be any different than you are? Just sit and enjoy. And sometimes it takes uh, Zen masters or Zen uh, practitioners 20 years to figure out how to just sit and enjoy. That it finally dawns on them that they can just sit and enjoy. Well, if we could be taught that from, from an early place, then it works a lot easier. So that's the whole idea is that even though the students are given the right information, that doesn't mean that they're going to take that information and get the right results out of it, that we need to try various things around until something clicks. Like that example of clinging to something that starts slowly moving away until it gets 30 miles an hour, that really got a couple of people. They really said, yeah, I can see how clinging gets us like that. So it has to do then with the kind of examples that are used for the teacher. And in Zen, the Zen is Japanese examples and the Japanese people will understand that from that culture. What we're trying to do here is bring these deep teachings that are part of the human existence into a language for the Westerners that we can actually understand. And that's the more important thing than whether Zen is better than Theravada or, or better than Vajrayana or anything like that. Because in fact, if you know Titnahan, 
and you know the Dalai Lama, and you know Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa, you can see that we're right there. You've got Zen, and you've got uh, Vajrayana, and you've got Theravada, and they're all working because we've got grand masters to prove that the system's working. And not only that, but they knew each other and they proved to each other. We've got actually a video of the Dalai Lama and Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa together back in the 19, early 70s. Okay, so here we are now going to have an argument, which is better, Theravada or Zen? We're going to have an argument about which is better, Theravada or Vajrayana. They all work, but mostly they don't. <laughs> mostly they don't. Why is it? Because the student hasn't heard all they need to hear in order to come to a state of being satisfied. And that's really the whole idea of it. That's what Zen is all about. And they, I mean, just just one Japanese word, Zazen, is all you need to know. You don't need to know any other sutras, just the word Zazen. If you can go do Zazen, that's it. What is Zazen? You just do nothing, right? Yeah, just do nothing. You sit and you just, don't do anything. Just, just sit. <laughs> yeah. just I like that. That's nice. Enjoy. Yeah, just sit. That's what it means, Zazen. Just sit. Because the seeking that's is kind of what I've been doing lately. Yeah, that's like what I've been realizing lately. It's like the me wanting like anything, anything. It's just like that's the cause of it. It doesn't matter if it's got a spiritual paint job or like a materialist paint job. Mm -hmm. Like I just like do nothing. It's kind of chill. Yeah, just yeah. You're, you're satisfied. Yeah, we can just chill. There's nothing to do. No place to go. So yeah. that would be the language of the Zen is that um, uh, uh, that haiku. Uh, uh, no place to go and nothing to do and the spring comes and the grass grows by itself now who needs a sutta when you've got a haiku <laughs> <laughs> no place to go and nothing to do and the spring comes and the grass grows by itself but I've got nothing to do but just to sit <laughs> yeah I don't even read like the suttas unless it's something someone from the Sangha shares with me. It's like, who needs the suttas when you have the Sangha? Because I know Parker knows those about the suttas. Joe knows those about the suttas. Samarato draws from the suttas in his talks all the time. So I can kind of trust them and, and not need to investigate it myself and think about it. I can just let, you know, I, if I if I trust that they know what they're talking about, then I can just listen and take it on faith and it kind of works. That's an excellent de definition of Sangha that our buddies do all the work for us and all we yeah, have to yeah. do is just <laughs> learn from them <laughs> it's, it's, cr it's crazy because when i first started calling with you damarato i was whenever you were t speaking to me i'd always be trying to think about it and compare it to these other ideas that i'd heard and try to make sense of it but now when i listen um i don't even i try not to even think and it's not really trying but like i try not to even think and i just let you speak and i actually i understand what you're saying like a lot better like uh -huh. it, the, i just I, the point gets its like self you know like i just get it you know i should just tell just, that like, mention that you. to every new student because what happens with the students is they come with all this great big glob of buddhas and they don't quite get it all together but boy do they have a big handful of it and so they listen <laughs> yeah. to me start and when they start they try to take what i'm saying in the moment and try to plug it in to what they already know this is a really long, slow, hard process of trying to fit things in to what we already know. 
yeah, it's you know, much better mind, to just the set all, yeah, the set, right, to just set all that stuff aside and be in the present moment and listen to what's happening now, and then later you can go and try to put those things together, and you can recognize, yeah, they do fit, but not when you get one finger yeah. at a time. <laughs> yeah. yeah. You know what's so funny about that? When I was at Wat Jom Tong for my 21-day Vipassana retreat, um, you know, I'd been a Zen practitioner for a year or two and a couple of years, and they said, hey, you got to throw all that out, man. You know, no Zen is allowed in here. This is Vipassana. <laughs> <laughs> if I ever and they said told me I was concentrating too much. They said, Hey, you're concentrating too much. Don't concentrate that much. But you know, the Zen master will say the same thing. Don't work so hard. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so that working hard yeah. was not Zen and it wasn't Theravada. Maybe it was Jewish. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we work hard. <laughs> I wrote yeah. something down. I just will enjoy it. <clears throat> it was that the seeking is the dukkha. The end result of seeking is counterintuitive because we've always come to know and think that pleasure is happiness because pleasure temporarily reduces suffering. And so we mistake pleasure for happiness. And so we don't ever think that by not seeking pleasure, which is essentially the external object, we never mm -hmm. think that by stopping to seek pleasure that we can find happiness. Because we've always been uh, caught in ignorance. We've always thought that happiness is pleasure. Um, we have the concepts messed up. And we never really can kind of put two and two together to realize that it's by stopping the seeking for constantly looking for pleasure. And like that's where we really find happiness, when we stop seeking pleasure and we stop seeking those things. But um, I don't know, it just kind of really resonated with me. It's so it's it's like trippy though, because because you're seeking happiness, but then the seeking is the the not having. Uh, happiness. That's the dukkha. So it's exactly. like a strange loop, yeah. Mm -hmm. It's like a like those optical illusion images where it like loops on itself. That's part of the reason why so many people who are practicing, whether it's Theravada or Zen or Vajrayana, is because they they came to it because they wanted something out of it, but then they didn't make that switch. And all of the teachings are to make that switch. You come because you want something, but you stay because you're satisfied with not getting it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's <laughs> crazy. <laughs> I was talking about that before we started. <laughs> well, you know, there's that old uh, Shinryu Suzuki uh koan you know the journey is the reward mm -hmm. exactly that yeah. this, this present yeah. moment is the only reward you're you're going to get this present moment is the only aliveness you'll ever know right now you're alive experience being alive right now because this is the only time you have is right now and, and like Another thing like people do or I have done was like I thought I, I do the technique to get to the enlightenment. And it's like it's like Daniel Ingram talks about it as cessation as this physiological fact of our biology. It's just this moment that happens and then the enlightenment comes. But actually, the technique when properly enacted is the enlightenment. Mm -hmm. the, in, the enlightenment is just doing the technique properly. Precisely. And yeah. it's like uh, with, with self-inquiry, you're in, you, you look backwards at yourself. 
that when you actually look backwards in the correct direction, the, that is the the enlightenment. The technique of self-inquiry is the same as the result. Yeah, that's just like a that's a really obvious example with self-inquiry. Right. I find. Just don't look too far back. That's the whole point is just look back just enough like a second or so. That's all we need to do is just look back and reflect over the past second, maybe past half minute, something like that. But other than that, no, what happened yesterday, that's gone. You know what's interesting about that, though, is sometimes I like to look back on the past for Dhamma lessons. You know, think about something that happened. Well, now that's reflecting. Earth. That's a different point, yes. But now we're looking for it in Dhamma rather than looking for it in bad feelings. Now we're, you're using it as a teacher rather than as a taskmaster. Sure. So, so here's there a question. is value in that. Well, so, we, there's no end to your questions, Robert. Let's finish this thing. Uh, <laughs> we almost got finished 30 minutes ago. No end, right. <laughs> and, and not only that, but thank you so much. I really do appreciate you guys. This is really, really great. This has been so marvelous. Thank you. And I appreciate thank your you for having us. Oh, this thank is, you. I mean, this is Sangha, though. You guys are really beginning to know each other, and that's what's important. Because I'm going to be gone. But you guys will have each other. It happens. Someone's got to take the crown. Got to pass on to a disciple. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, old, old men die. They don't just fade away. They die. <laughs> and we so anyway, for this moment, Guys, for you, I'm going to die. We'll see you. <laughs> die well. Yeah. Have a good okay. night, everybody. Happily. You're going to be magical thinking in a moment. Bye, <laughs> <laughs> right, Robert. Okay, bye-bye, guys. Thank you, Domodoc. I appreciate it. Jeff, see you. Corey? Bye. Great. See you guys. See you later. Thank you for your time.